Uh, good evening, everyone. Welcome to our conversation series on the future of sustainability solutions. Uh, my name's Brent Ritchie. Uh, I'm the Associate Dean Research in the Faculty of Business, Economics and Law and at UQ. I'm also Acting Director of our Faculty Institute, the Australian Institute for Business and Economics, or ABE. We like acronyms at the university. ABE is easier, isn't it? So I want to begin with an acknowledgement of country. Um, I want to acknowledge the traditional owners and the custodianship of the lands on which we meet today. And as I said, we're live streaming, so we're meeting on many lands. On behalf of the traditional owners, I pay our respects to their ancestors and their descendants who continue cultural and spiritual connections to country. We recognise their valuable contributions to Australian and global society. So I'm very excited that Abe is uh, co-hosting tonight's event with UQ's Centre for Policy Futures. Uh, on behalf of both Abe and the Centre for Policy Futures and their acting director, Pedro, who you'll meet at the end of the session, welcome. Some of us are joining us here, as I said, at Customs House, but we also have participants joining us from, for the live stream from across uh, the world, possibly for the first half of our event. Unfortunately, they can't participate in the workshop that we're going to have, the second part of the event, but certainly they'll be watching and able to participate in the first part of the event. So our conversation uh, series topic today is the future of sustainability solutions. So we're all very, very aware of the issues and challenges concerning climate change and sustainability, but there's a growing sense of urgency now to find and implement solutions to deal with very complex and interrelated challenges. Sometimes we refer to these as being wicked uh, problems. Progress is perhaps occurring, maybe not at the speed that we would like. So what can we do to speed up progress? What current solutions exist that perhaps we can scale up? What are the barriers to scaling up existing solutions? What new policies or strategies are needed to address climate and sustainability challenges? Are they going to be adaptive and flexible to manage change and complexity that, that we're going to encounter in the coming years? Uh, there might be uh, sort of win-win wins. There might be commercial value. Um, there might be wins where we can align commercial activities with environmental and social outcomes. And I know that some of the, the panellists today will be mentioning things like carbon offsets in the circular economy. Research and development and the emergency of novel, technological, novel technological solutions may also provide some hope, and some of our panellists today will touch and highlight on the role of technology and how it can play a role in accelerating, in particular, our energy transition. Another thing that we might explore today is around partnerships. And we've very deliberately chosen a range of different uh, panellists from a range of different sectors and academia to talk about the issues, but we've also deliberately chosen a range of people here in the audience, uh, from industry, from government, from not-for-profit sectors. So partnerships are probably gonna be really crucial to meet, meet the challenges that we've got ahead of us. So how can we improve our collaboration between the researchers or the R&D, private sector, the public sector, and of course the not-for-profit sector, which also has a really important role to play. And of course we can't forget the communities themselves. We need to make sure that any solutions need to be designed and implemented fairly and justly. So there's a social justice dimension we, we can't forget either. So these are some things that might come out of today's uh, uh, conversation series. So we hope to start a renewed conversation on sustainability solutions, moving us towards solutions rather than just talking about the problems and issues. And our panellists are going to help us set the scene for our conversation tonight. 
So two key questions. I want the, um, the people here and the room and the people on the live stream to think about two key questions. And this is the questions we pose to the panelists. What do you think are the key needs or gaps in implementing sustainability solutions in your sector? So what are the top gaps? And later when we get to the workshop, we'll probably get you to think about one or two or three. What are the top ones? Secondly, what action is required to address these needs and gaps? So what needs to happen? What do we need to do? And what do we need to do urgently based on the issues and the challenge we've got in front of us? So these are the two questions we'll pose to you in the workshop in the second half of tonight. These are the kind of questions we pose to the panellists to reflect on, to comment on in the panel discussion in the first half of the session. So in terms of the format, um, as I said, uh, we have the panel discussion first, and then the second half of tonight is a workshop. We're putting you to work, and you will get fed during the work, and you will get a drink at the end of it. For those being live streamed, I'm sorry, you might have to send you a virtual sandwich or sushi roll, apologize, but we'll still hopefully involve you in the discussion and the panel discussion questions coming up. So each panelist will provide an opening address for five minutes, sharing their perspective on those two questions. Um, then we'll have Q&A, we'll drop some food on the tables, um, and then around seven o'clock or just before seven o'clock, we'll say goodbye to our online audience. Very sorry, we'll have to say goodbye. And then we'll move into a workshop format. And uh, Isabel will explain the nature of that workshop format. But yes, you will be doing some working and work and thinking. Um, then we'll wrap up, uh, reconvene at eight uh, with some closing remarks and then we'll serve some drinks. So you will be rewarded around eight o'clock or just after. After the event, what we'll do is produce a report based on your input from the discussion sessions we have and the tables. Uh, and we'll circulate that to all of you after the event. And we want to follow up with uh, discussing things and continue the conversation with you. And at the closing address, Pedro from the Centre for Policy Futures will explain, explain the next steps. So thanks to the panel. Um, I'm going to introduce each panellist and then we'll start our panel discussion. So firstly, uh, we have Georgine Rudin-Rees um, from the Department of Environment and Science. So Georgine is Executive Director there. Um, a little bio, I'll read a little bio of each, um, and then we'll move into the panel discussion. So I'll do all the bios first and the introductions, then we'll move on to the five minutes each. So since joining government, Georgina has led the delivery of the Queensland climate change response and been instrumental in the delivery of the Palace Shea government's $500 million land restoration fund. And Georgina has also been involved in the $500 million workers' assistance package and the $200 million future skills fund. Uh, to Georgine's sort of left and your right, that's uh, Associate Professor Ian McKenzie from the School of Economics at the University of Queensland. Ian's an economist, but a nice one apparently, a sensible one. Um, he specialises in environmental economics, environmental policy and contest theory, and he publishes on the regulation of pollution markets and environmental auctions. And uh, he may be talking about carbon offsets in that context. Um, to his left is Anna Marsden, um, is it CEO or Managing Director? Whatever you want to do. <laughs> the Big Potato at the, at the Great Barrier Reef Foundation. Um, so Anna has driven record fundraising growth for the Great Barrier Reef, bringing together corporate and private philanthropy with government and science, and has charted the development of a portfolio of reef programs that take practical action and deliver science and innovation needed to protect and restore the reef for future generations. And I need to report a conflict of interest I have some funding through the Reef Trust Partnerships. Thank you very much, Anna. It has nothing to do with your invitation to this panel, I must admit. <laughs> so thanks for joining us, Anna. 
Um, to, then we have Belinda Wade. Belinda Wade is a lecturer in sustainability uh, at the UQ Business School and leads the Business Sustainability Initiative Research Hub. Uh, following her extensive experience in the corporate sector, Belinda's research examines corporate decarbonisation, climate change action and evolving business models. So Belinda might speak more about the business model side of things. And then we have Andrew White. Um, so thanks, Belinda. Andrew White uh, from Suncorp. Andrew is the Executive Manager, Sustainability Risk and Stress Testing. I think we all need a bit of stress testing, Andrew, uh, at Suncorp. Uh, Andrew's oversight uh, includes all of Suncorp's sustainability programs of work, and he's worked at Suncorp for 15 years, support, supporting many initiatives focused on sustainability and banking and insurance operations. Thank you very much, Andrew. And then finally, we have uh, Dr. Lynette Molyneux uh, from the Centre for Policy Futures at the University of Queensland. And Lynette is a Amplify Research Fellow in the centre. Her interests include climate and energy policy, frameworks to facilitate adaptation to a fast-changing world and resilience in energy systems. So that's our six panellists and my task is to keep them to five minutes each and to allow enough time for us to have a discussion prior to seven o'clock. So wish me luck. So we'll start, Georgine, with you. Five minutes. So I'm happy to, for you to stay there or come to the podium, not a problem, but what I will do is about four minutes 30, I'll stand up. And then at 4 minutes 59, I'll start dancing. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Georgine. Welcome. Yes, thank you. Thanks very much. And thanks for having me. And apologies, I'm, my, my notes are on my laptop, so we'll just struggle on here tonight. Um, look, if I can add my acknowledgement to, to First Nations people and the lands on which we meet, um, to those online, uh, line your lands. Um, First Nations people have such an incredible role to play uh, in leadership for us as we start to grapple the real impacts, physical impacts of climate change. So, um, so grateful that we have their um, long uh, line of knowledge that we can call from as we start to face these future challenges. But um, funny that I'm first up trying to keep to time with a government perspective on this. Um, and also, of course, being from government, you get the questions and then completely ignore them. Um, that's just the way we roll. Um, so I've done that. Um, so what I'm going to do really is, is just provide, I guess, a couple of themes that the questions sort of evoked for me and, and some of the thinking that we're doing. Um, so two sort of two areas of themes. Um, one around the sort of the role of the environment and economics. I guess the great smashing or the intersection of, of those two great things. And then secondly, the challenge of government operations and the, the I guess the race to zero net emissions and what that is going to mean. So if I can go back to the role of environment and economics, there's there's just an interesting uh, I guess turning point uh, from uh, inside the Department of Environment and Science, which, which sort of um, manages these vast wildernesses for, for Queensland. Um, we need to, we have enormous targets to increase the vegetation cover in the state and much of the land that needs to be returned to National Park uh, needs significant rehabilitation. Um, the costs associated with both the acquisition of this land and the rehabilitation of this land are immense. Uh, and they really start to become beyond the, um, you know, the purse of, of state governments. And so then the question becomes, how do you uh, sort of attract third party investment, 
um, sort of really getting into these extraordinary um, uh, philanthropy philanthropists, sort of international philanthropy, to, to attract that money into the state. Uh, and so you suddenly find yourself uh, turning your landscape into a really sexy sales pitch for international investment. And of course, what you find yourself doing is instead of saying that surely we have a moral obligation um, as, as people who live in this beautiful place to, to keep the, um, the, the natural environment pristine and, and to conserve our extraordinary biodiversity, you suddenly find yourself having to recast that conversation to one of how that environment serves our species. So how does that environment uh, uh, benefit our health? How does that environment benefit our food systems? How does that extraordinary biodiversity ensure that our you know, crops are successful, etc.? And all of a sudden you're in an incredibly different conversation, uh, a very human-centric conversation that moves to an economic framing very much away from a moral obligation. And a lot of people really struggle with that. It also then requires you to be able to quantify the pitch that you're making, of course. You can't just sell all this fabulous stuff. There's a Trade Practices Act that probably sits over the top of that. I don't think it goes that far. But nonetheless, you need to be able to quantify um, this extraordinary benefit that you are trying to pitch and sell. Um, and then we get into really amazing technology uh, sort of interfaces, of course. How do we become so aware and able to quantify, count, um, you know, categorise um, this extraordinary natural environment that we have? And certainly we get into uh, areas of the Land Restoration Fund, which, which others will speak to later, where we've got the, uh, we, we, we pay for not only carbon credits, so carbon in the landscape, but then the biodiversity or, or um, additional environmental service benefits that come on top of that. Again, that has to be quantified and codified and economised and, and put into something that is tangible because you want to be able to sell it and trade it and um, sort of vouch for it. So e extraordinary area and I think some, some real philosophical challenges but also technology challenges and economics challenges around that sort of space. So I just wanted to throw that in there. The other one I want to throw in was government operations. An enormous beast is government. If you think about ownership of all the generation assets, um, ownership of all the hospitals, uh, the road network, all of the things that we operate, there is no doubt that at some point in time uh, government will be required to become carbon neutral. Um, it certainly is not a target that this government has at this point in time. But I'm interested to understand, uh, we're certainly working on a carbon neutral national parks uh, within the Department of Environment and Science. And it's the human component, the change management that is so challenging for this aspect. How do you, people get, how do you get people to own this and start to really think about their operations in terms of sustainability? Just a massive issue. I've run out of time. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thanks, Georgine. Thank you very much. Next. So fast and furious, but please think about questions for the discussion component. Thanks very much. I want to be the most academic uh, in today's presentation, so I've actually got some slides. So um, to our lecture, Ian. Just like to <laughs> <laughs> thanks for the invite. Um, now I'm, I'm an environmental economist, so 
you know, explain to me what that is. But um, someone who likes the environment but wants um, wants to cost everything. Mm. <laughs> um, so what I'm trying to look for here and and discuss in four and a half minutes is um, about the barriers and maybe the potential solutions to um, prospects for environmental offsetting in a very general sense. And I'm, I'm doing this because this is what I do for a living. So go me. Um, right. So as you can see, environmental offsetting is broadly, as I like to call it, trying to reduce um, pollution, in, in, in increase pollution abatement, and try and improve biodiversity. Okay, And this has got a long established um, success rate of a percentage of some sort for the clean development mechanism, uh, the Federal Emissions Reduction Fund, and the Fantastic Land Restoration Fund. Now, the great thing about offsets, and the thing I love about it most, is it provides a pathway to um, reduce emissions. Okay, And it doesn't necessarily have to involve prescriptive legalistic regulations in some sense, it's, it's voluntary. So if you have farmers or landholders who want to participate and are eager to participate, then you incentivize them. And it, in a, from an economic perspective, it's fantastic. Um, and the thing I, I really like about it, being an economist, is that it can help foster a carbon price. And you know, I go to bed at night wishing there was an international carbon price that would be fully fungible across the world. OK, so. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> now, because um, I've only got a couple of minutes, I wanted to think about the questions that I've been thinking when I wake up, because there's no carbon price, and thinking about what are the problems offsets, what are the, what, what are the ones that I can actually research adequately, and then what are the solutions to that. So I thought about two, fundamentally, participation. If you look at the Emissions Reduction Fund in the federal federal government, the participants are pretty large firms, so there's not very small, medium-sized firms participating in this. And it could be argued that it's administratively cumbersome. If you want to participate in the Emissions Reduction Fund, you need a degree in auction theory. I've spent three years trying to understand the Emissions Reduction Fund, and I'm just getting there. So you could... Uh, land restoration funds much better, oh, OK? Because they've got a panel who looks at the co-benefits. But still, you have to get an advisor who can actually see that you're actually eligible. And these things take time. And if you're a, a small farmer in Queensland, you, and I've talked to a few, they don't really want to participate in this. So the question is, how do we incentivize local, small, medium-sized enterprises to participate in this? Because if we do, we can get low-cost pollution abatement. Um, the, the second one is, what I've seen, especially in the, the federal leg legislation, is there's problems with contracts. So a lot of the contracts you see, we have this auction, it's all it's a fanfare of uh, success, but then slowly but surely, the contracts that have been signed for this auction are reneged. And of course, when you have reneged contracts, you don't have the abatement. And more worryingly, of course, I love carbon prices, the carbon prices that started, because it's kind of phantom pollution abatement. So that's something I don't really want to see, and I've been actively thinking about this in my head and on paper. Okay, now, the problem there is you don't know what the impact's going to be in the future, and you don't know the carbon price. So can we sort of solve these, these issues? And as an academic, yes, we can. You just need to provide funding, and I will give you the solutions, okay? The first one about participation. As we've seen in, in many of the schemes that exist already, aggregation is one of the... The most interesting things I can say about the offset markets, aggregations 
occur when an, an aggregator, an intermediary, brings in small firms, small enterprises, uses that abatement, and then goes to the auction or the market or the application as a single single bidder. And that's great. If you're a small farmer, you don't have to participate in finding out auction rules and reading auction theory textbooks. You can just find an intermediary. So while that's happening already, academically and, and information about aggregation is we just simply don't know. We simply don't know the consequences of, of full-term aggregation. What I see is you might increase participation from small farmers, but then you're actually reducing the number of people in this competitive market to the aggregators. And if you have a, two or three aggregators, you could get some serious anti-competitive behavior. And us economists don't like anti-competitive behavior usually. Okay. Now, in terms of the contracts, uh, another thing I love about um, the environment is trying to come up with optimal carbon contract design. How do we design a contract between government, private enterprise that will fully carbon sequester over 10, 15, 20 years? And it, I, I published one paper not once and it took me three and a half years and it was, it was not fun. And it's a very, very difficult problem. But there are solutions. And uh, now I'm currently working on what I call contract softness, enforcement. There seems to be kind of a trajectory, a kind of spectrum of uh, throughout the world in terms of contract and how they're enforced. Now, the problem here is if you have a more, let's say, soft contract, you're more flexible from the government's perspective, you'll get more participation. The problem is you might have um, non-realized abatement at the end of it. So the key question is, can you try and increase flexibility for enterprises, but also have secured realized abatement in the future? And the question is, and the answer is, it depends. It depends. But hopefully we should. Okay. Thanks, Ian. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, I think you've got to leave out Ian's slides because my lecture will sound more intelligent then if people can look at that. Um, I'm answering the first question that you gave me, Brent, which is a gap. And that, through that, I'm going to use my little five minutes to make a case for the urgency of collaborations if we're looking at the future of sustainability. Um, and I guess to step back a little bit from the intellectual and the, the brain argument, I'm going to go to the heart and just speak for a second about the awakening that's happening in um, consumers and individuals, you know, space against COVID in the sense that we all, and much was written about last year of COVID um, shining a light on the fragility of the planet, of our relationships with each other, of our own health. And now that we're in sort of year two, it's also really seeding a reprioritization to most individuals and most family units about what's important. We see this playing out globally in, in philanthropy that you've got a lot of super, super rich people who used to fund 10 things and 10 causes around the planet. Now they're funding three. Everyone is working out what they can do really, really well rather than being spread so thin. Um, and this awakening is seeding an idea that we aren't in balance with the planet. We're not in balance with the pace in which we operate. We're not in balance with how much we travel and all of these things. And people starting to find new habits and how they work. 
what this is also doing, and it's showing up across consumer insights that big, rich companies are doing all around the place to understand how they can continue to be in step and how they market and position their brand, is that people are expecting more and they're expecting leadership. And if they're not getting that in government areas, and I think our government's doing very well, so thank you very much, but if they're not getting that leadership in government, they're looking at the next brand that comes into their life. They're looking at the big brands and how they choose um, their products and how they choose to live. And so what we're finding, which is a really powerful moment in time, is that sustainability and sustainability teams is no longer almost an, an add-on to a consumer discussion or a consumer decision. And sitting in a charity, what has been very interesting to observe in the last six months is when you're sitting down with big organizations and big brands talking about partnerships who you're having it with is the head of sustainability and the chief marketing officer and for the first time ever they are in step with each other they're looking at how they can consumify their sustainability targets how they can make them meaningful how they can go from being a sustainable leader to a sustainable influencer and this is a really powerful strategy and a really powerful place that we must get into and support them but what this also is meaning is that everyone is looking for how they can have impact and that is why I think it's really interesting that we use this awakening that the COVID crisis has presented to prepare ourselves as a nation, as a civilization, for the next crisis coming, which is going to be the climate crisis. And the only way we're going to really be able to respond to that is through collaboration and partnerships. Um, it's a real soft spot for the Great Barrier Reef Foundation because it's absolutely at the core of our purpose. We were found um, 20 years ago with an observation that the reef, this amazing, iconic um, bucket list destination um, you know, and symbol of uh, environmental and planetary health, did not have a charity that was focusing on its protection. And it also that all the amazing people who are working, whether they were in science or conservation, were working in silos no one was bringing them together so we do two very simple things we fund programs that solve the problems facing the reef and we fund programs that require a collective impact so we don't go in areas where it can be solved by one institution and so we are a proof point of the power of partnership and um, we do that with industry that we do that with science we do that with conservation groups and we do it with government and I mean in my five minutes and you're going to stand up soon so I won't do it there's lots of proof points of simple projects that simply would not have the numbers and the metrics and the, the biodiversity kick pushing that table because it's still the lowest attendance in their biodiversity. Yay, great discussion at the end because Pedro's a god. Um, it, you know, they, we simply wouldn't be able to get them done if we didn't get the people around the table and at the risk of offending the amazing marine scientists we work with, solving a, a challenge like the Great Barrier Reef, the world's largest coral reef, will not be solved purely by marine scientists. What we have is a scale issue and a speed issue. We need high impact. We are low on time because we have a closing window for opportunity. So we will not get there if we just lock this up as a science challenge. It must be an engineering challenge, an engineering feat, and it must be a technological challenge and it must be paid for so that you know us bringing in the economic drivers into the situation and bringing those brains together and having the the combination and the fluidity and partnerships is the only way we'll get there when we come to the reef there are two fundamental reasons of why we will not get there if we do not collaborate one of course is getting the right brains the right
like blended brands so it isn't business as usual the second one is that we only way we'll solve climate change which is a people problem is bringing the people together and taking them on the journey at the various stages the reasons why okay thank you very much the reasons why partnerships can be so powerful is that they have the ability to share stories and amplify message and de-risk them because you've got this sort of collective impact three things that are powerful and required for a successful partnership one is very clear reasons of what success is what do we all want to be facing in the in five years time or ten years time and looking at the impact what are all the clear roles that each of us are playing i think if you're not clear about that and you're muddied on that you you have crossover of roles and you trip over people but what's clear areas and then absolutely we have to build trust and respect amongst the group and that is challenged in these environments zoom's not a great place to date and so i think you know to talk about how we're going to get there we've got to find the right collisions of brains and industries and groups in which we're going to all work together and save this remarkable planet thank you okay so it's my great pleasure to talk to you a little bit about circular economy and new business models um now first of all i was thinking well when we think about sustainable solutions, how can you really detach them from new business models? Obviously, we can't continue to operate our businesses the way we've been um, in the past. So we need to be thinking and really challenging ourselves in these areas. Um, now, I've taken your two questions and added a couple on because I thought I don't quite know where everyone's at. But yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm not good at maths. Um, so circular economy, what are we actually really talking about? Um, now, the first thing we're thinking about is, well, is, you know, how do we actually retain value of our resources in our systems for longer? longer? How do we minimise waste? Um, and at the same time, is there a way we can actually rejuvenate um, and benefit the natural environment? And I remember early on in, in thinking about circular economy, I saw a Alan MacArthur analogy, which was thinking about nature and the way nature grows, the trees grow. When there's waste, when leaves drop, they, you know, hit the ground. And it's, it's part of the system. It regenerates. It, it, it builds back up. And, and our businesses can, can sort of think about that as well. Um, does waste have to be waste? Can we actually reconceptualise that as value? Um, so it's a, a lot of it's around um, reconceptualising the way we do business and challenging um, what we've done in the past. Um, so we really kind of need to sort of reframe our thinking um, about these sort of things. Um, so the next thing I started to think about was, you know, why is it part of a sustainable solution? Why is circularity um, and things like um, the sharing economy, how can they be part of the sustainable solution? Um, and I started thinking about benefits. And these sort of concepts can really, we can think about them benefits in terms of how they benefit us as, as individuals. Um, you know, do they increase our disposable economy, um, disposable income, sorry, do they increase our health by benefit the environment. Um, but we can see all these sort of benefits that come to us as an individual by really challenging the way we've operated our businesses in the past. Um, but we can also then think about, well, we operate our businesses, we interact with individuals. Um, so we have to go back to those fundamentals of how do we actually design our businesses around sustainability. And we can see some really interesting examples of that. I think I don't know if people are very familiar with a company called Interface, which make carpet tiles. So that was a company where the, the owner actually had quite an epiphany and completely came back to their organisation and challenged, 
everything about the organisation from the way they design their products to their processes um, and set themselves these sustainability challenges. And they both, um, you know, completely altered the way they made their products, but also their business models. So you can now lease carpets, carpet tiles from the company. Um, you can just replace one aspect of it. If something's damaged, you don't have to replace the whole, the whole um, carpet. Um, but also thinking about a company, a local company, Rock Trade, who we have Greg in the room. Thank you, Greg. Um, it's been my real pleasure to be able to study this company um, and the way that they've challenged their waste issue. So this is a company which is a sandstone quarrying company. Um, in the past, these companies have had up to, what, 70% waste, Greg, 70, 80% waste. So what, what happened within um, Rock Trade though, was this fundamental, again, like Interface, fundamental challenging the principles under which they ran the organisation. So how can they set out to be a sustainable organisation? Um, and in doing that and reconceptualising waste as a resource, they came up with a whole lot of valuable products so they could extend the product life for longer. They could offer these, you know, a huge amount of um, additional products. And it's been um, a, a challenging journey, but a very good journey um, for the company. And we can also start to think of these things at about a societal level. Um, so how can we look at these interactions between our businesses, between each other and societies, and sort of question the way um, we've been operating? Um, and I know some, some um, societies overseas, like Amsterdam, they're starting to think about, well, how can they be a circular city? And they're looking at things like about, I think, 200, um, over 200 um, million euro a year in sort of um, increased benefits to the economy um, as well as jobs. So what does it actually require for businesses to be able to do this? Um, and it's, you know, we can sort of think about um, these sort of capabilities that organisations need to have. Um, and these sort of, I think we've seen them touched on in the past. Um, you know, they need to be thinking about where their material and energy flows are. But then they also need to be thinking about innovation. Um, and if we're thinking about the needs and how we actually get this to occur, um, we can see the needs for things like, you know, regulations and standards. How are they set? How can we adopt these quicker to bring new products to market and accelerate a time frame we need to meet these challenges? Um, how can we invest in that cognitive shift that's happening within our workforce and our leaders? Um, and then how do we actually partner for this innovation? You know, and that's between companies, between universities, between government. So how can we partner to actually um, create these solutions to these challenges? Um, and I guess, you know, investing in innovation is another, another thing we need to be thinking of within new, new business models um, and new technology. So significant challenge, um, but exciting times. So thank you. Hi. Um, I'm a bit regretful that I didn't focus more on climate change. It seems to be a lot more my job these days, and it's certainly a turning point in your career when you spend more time dealing with sustainability matters than you do stress testing. So um, I'm talking about corporate purpose, so I'll, I'll probably put a bit more of a financial services flavour on it given where I am at the moment. So um, over the course of 2017 to 2019, the, the behaviours, attitudes and, and culture of financial services industry was put under the microscope by a Royal Commission. 
the outworkings of the Royal Commission are probably still working their way through and being dealt with as of today. Um, one of the, the most evolved and prevailing outcomes that, that kind of galvanised with leaders um, as an outcome of the, uh, the Royal Commission was a, a real focus on uh, unifying organisations with a corporate purpose. Um, and subsequently, and I'll probably read out a few corporate purposes and double points if you can guess who they are, but with a, a banking lens, um, the corporate purposes is to improve financial wellbeing of our customers and communities, um, to shape the world, uh, a world where people and communities thrive, um, helping Australians to succeed, um, to serve customers well and help communities prosper. Um, and I'll throw in a few more insurance ones just to keep you guessing. Um, to help make your world a safer place, uh, to give people the confidence to achieve their ambitions, and building futures and protecting what matters. So aside from being quite uplifting, the, the purposes tend to operate from a similar intent, and by and large, uh, that's a factor of the, the real reason that financial services companies tend to exist is at its core is to, to share in the successes and failures of the customers, communities and economies in which they operate. Um, and a quick example would be um, uh, buying your first home and making sure that you've got a, a job to ensure that you've got income to support it and buy it and uh, that's a pretty big success. Um, having a failure associated with it would be losing your job, not being able to, to have a home. And in the first instance, the bank will share in the success and generate some income from that. But in, in the case of losing your job, the bank has to share in that loss of, of, of income as well. Um, what you note um, from, from that kind of example, and, and certainly it comes through in my other part of the job in the stress testing uh, space, is there's a symbiotic relationship between any business and its customers. And really, when it comes down to a corporate purpose, that's a good reason to have why do we exist. Uh, but more specifically, when you start thinking about how do we try and implement a corporate purpose and what does it mean, uh, particularly in a sustainability space, it becomes a lot more convoluted and complex. Uh, for an industry uh, whose purpose is to support other businesses achieve what matters to them, uh, the, the the 16 SDGs from the UN poses a really interesting challenge. Uh, and the reason being, it, it's not a simple answer. We can't spend our money supporting every single initiative and, and caring about everything that matters to everyone else. We have to come back to what matters to us. So as an example, um, you'd probably pick up from some of the, the variances in the different examples that I gave you. Um, that different institutions are taking a different path on, on what matters to them. Um, and what you can also see from, from those examples is that some uh, corporate purposes are actually demonstrating their right to play in, in that industry. So uh, if you think about uh, sustainability development goal number one around no poverty, and you can also take an example around uh, goal number eight, which is around decent work and economic growth. Those are really at the core of what banking as an industry is about. So addressing matters like financial inclusion or financial resilience are, are more likely to take centre stage and prevalence than some of the other ones. 
Um, but again, if you're focusing just on one stakeholder like your customers, um, it makes it hard to, to really think about um, who you, who, whose needs are you really meeting. Um, one way to think about addressing it would be to try and use something like Maslow's hierarchy of needs as a guide to, to reset how do you think about purpose and it can be quite arbitrary. Again, you're thinking along the lines of whose needs are you meeting? Um, from a customer perspective, uh, financial services really solves a basic need. Um, but if you go to another industry, it could be something completely different. Uh, social media would be solving some of those higher level needs around psychological or self-fulfillment. So it, it, again, it comes back to uh, which industry are you dealing with, uh, which stakeholder. Um, conscious of time. Um, good, lovely. Um, so I suppose trying to reframe it back to one of the questions, one of the, the key things um, around corporate purpose, and, and it's still what we're trying to establish over a long period of time is, um, and it is definitely a cliche, is those things that are measured are those things that are managed. So um, I might finally leave you with that thought and uh, hopefully give you some time back if I made it. Now I've just got to adjust this down to pygmy height. <laughs> um, so I'm here. The question that I, the first question that I had was that, um, what do we need? And in reality, um, as I see it from an energy perspective, what we really need is sustainable transport. And sustainable transport has had a very checkered history. Um, the reality is, is that. Um, there's a lot of horrible stuff that comes out the back of your car every time you're driving down the road, which causes pollution. But there's also a lot of CO2, which, CO2, which comes out the back of your car every time you draw, drive down the road. And to be honest, the, the, the technological route to sustainable transport has been a little checkered. Um, a, a quick history is that effectively uh, it was in the 1990s that um, after a series of environmental catastrophes, one of which was the um, combustion of the river that cuts through Cleveland, Ohio, that, um, that caused the, the whole of the states to actually go into an environmental frenzy as to how they would change the way things were done. It was the beginning of the Environmental Protection Act and a whole suite of programs. But part of that was also that this, the um, city of Los Angeles had appalling um, air quality conditions. And as a result of that, California was very much uh, motivated to um, reduce the smog in the city. There was also a huge incidence of childhood asthma. And effectively what happened is there was a few um, 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 emission standards that were introduced, of which one was the zero electric vehicle um, um, project. Now it kind of kind of got through unexpected, but the interesting thing about it was is that it did encourage the big automakers to actually go down the route of looking towards um, zero emission vehicles. Um, the first was the GM's EV1, which if you speak to anybody who had one of them thought they were fabulous. Um, Toyota actually produced a, a RAV4 that had some form of um, electrification as well. But three years later, after a um, um, challenge by the auto manufacturers, um, 2003, the law was withdrawn and everything went back to normal again. So we'd had this quite good increase in the technology and then it fell flat. 
And then it almost had to wait until we got to 2008 when we had another financial crisis. What happened was money went out the door to actually keep GM, Ford, Tesla um, from hemorrhaging money and disappearing. And as a result of that, what we had was a huge amount of um, innovation that happened in GM, Ford and Tesla. And as, as a result of that, we now have lithium-ion batteries and we have a potential to actually move to a considerably better sustainable transport system as a result of those technological improvements. The interesting thing with the technological improvements, though, is, is that we remain concerned about range anxiety. And um, the range anxiety, of course, can be resolved through distribution systems of, of charging stations. There are a whole bunch of things you can do. In terms of what we need to do, um, the technology is you know, kind of almost there in a sense of, so there's a bit of range, but we can resolve in all of that. But what we need to do is put a whole series of policies in place. The EU has started with this in its Green Deal. The Green Deal is effectively a stimulus package, which is not only stimulus, but it's also focused towards reducing carbon emissions. And specifically, uh, in the terms of transport, all vehicles now, by 2025, have to have a um, well, the, the new vehicles sold in any year have to have um, an average of four litre, uh, three and a half litres per hundred kilometres. The average in Australia today is 11. And by 2030, that average has to reduce to three litres per hundred kilometres to actually kind of reduce the carbon emissions associated. Consequence of this is that Europe has, has um, the European car makers have really pushed out the boat in terms of, of designing new battery electric vehicles. They have more than 330 models due out within the next two to three years. The IEA is predicting that the, the shift towards um, um, the electrification of transport to meet all of these objectives is going to move, the global vehicles are going to move from 3 million sold today of electric vehicles to 13 million by 2025 to 26 million by 2020, by 2030. If we use today's stated policy objectives, if we actually kind of attempt to reach the Paris Agreement, that will be almost double those quantities. Now, the beauty of, of that for economic development is, is that Europe is going to spend up big on reduced, improving the manufacturing of lithium-ion batteries in, within Europe itself. But Europe has a fundamental challenge in that they actually don't have the minerals to get there, which is where Australia hopes into view. It has all of the minerals. It has them in the capacities it needs. However, Australia um, has for too long basically dug the stuff out the ground and shipped it overseas. China has become the predominant processor of these minerals and has also taken a significant lead in the sort of chemical um, um, processing of them as well to, to the refined state they need for battery precursors before you put them into a lithium cell. And the consequence of that for, for, for Australia is that we really need to learn how to collaborate it's a, it's a multi-dimensional partnership that has to be between the automakers across the world who actually need to partner with the critical mineral suppliers because there's not enough. It needs to be collaboration between government departments because, of course, the stretches across the government departments. It means needs to be collaboration between the miners, the processors, the refiners, the lithium cell manufacturers, because there needs to be a supply chain that goes to all of them. And then the final point is that all of those all need to collaborate together to actually come up with something that is going to work and is going to actually give Australia the opportunity to 
invest in the manufacturing. It's so keen to go. Thank you. Thanks, Lynette. I don't know what I did with this. There we go. Thanks very much to the panel. Um, pretty much sticking to time. I think we're only five minutes over, which is great. Um, so some food, food for thought from the panel. We have some food on the tables. We'll have to feed the panellists in due course. Um, so let, let's open it up to questions and discussion. Um, we also probably have some questions coming on the live stream. But uh, rather than me as a facilitator asking questions, I hate that when I go to events. Let's open it up to the people here and the live streamers. Any questions for the panellists? So whether a individual panellist or the panel overall. Any questions? Come on. Yes. Uh, Mike's coming for you. Yep. Uh, hi, I'm Tanya. I'm here at the EcoBiz program tonight. My question is mostly in regards to, I suppose, carbon offsets for Professor McKenzie. I'm talking about opening up that space for small and medium-sized enterprises and presumably also individuals. Um, what, how do you address the issue of faith that your money is going somewhere good and the fear around the concept of greenwashing and the sort of legitimate issues that are there? How do you, how do you open up that space whilst also still ensuring that it's of a high quality? We could start with a well, kind of, yeah, we could start with a you know, warm-up question, not the hardest one. Um, <laughs> Uh, again, this is, the, this is the paradox. To ensure uh, enforceability, to transparency, it's going to cost money. And, um, and, and that's why what I've been doing in, in some of my research is, is looking more at not necessarily providing transfers from individuals or governments to small uh, enterprises, but ensuring that they have the private benefit to do it. So we, we have a, done a, did a project down the granite belt with wine growers and stuff. Um, and they were, we, we found that there was a lot of misinformation, not necessarily misinformation, but lack of information about the processes, the sustainable practices that they could actually do. And I think if we capture the, whatever it means, through government means, through uh, local wine growing groups, to ensure that the sustainable practices are, are there with better data in terms of how much we have that could improve their profitability in the revenue stream, then I think we're halfway there. If you make it a private benefit, then you don't need to worry. Um, other than that, you, you're going to have to do monitoring and you're going to try and have more um, more transparency and, and, and more administration. But again, as technology improves, that's only going to um, it's only going to improve. So again, it's standard economist, let's assume technological progress solves it all. And um, Georgine, might, you might want to comment because you mentioned quantifying. Yeah, uh, I, I think things. that's right. And I think te technology is tragically probably a great part of the answer, as in um, this notion of, of, of how do we use satellite technology, for example, to be able to really hone in it and look at an environmental outcome. Um, how do we um, really work with big data to be able to sort of manipulate large packages of data to be able to sort of verify certain outcomes? Um, I think, you know, every industry has this issue, um, only recently talking about um, decarbonisation of the beef production supply chain, for example. So how to use blockchain to be 
able to get that sort of, um, uh, you know, all the way from the beast knowing that it is not on a deforested um, paddock through to a plate and know that the supply chain has been decarbonised. You know, how do we use technology to, to do that sort of um, source and providence um, issue? Um, this this issue um, intersects a number of sectors and I think um, technology solutions are, are really are going to be an exciting part of that and, and big data solutions, yeah. Okay, thank you. Any other comments from the panellists on, on that question? And having done some work with Qantas and the Carbon Market Institute around carbon offsets for aviation, I, I know what you mean around greenwashing. It is a real black box. Consumers just don't understand what, what's actually happening in the back end. Yeah, question here. And then we might, after this question, take any from the live stream. Thank you. I guess following on from that answer, um, I'm a marine scientist. Um, so I completely agree with the need to be able to measure outcomes, but I would also argue that we don't understand causal pathways between the values, the attributes, the processes that we are trying to deliver You know, an outcome for. So agree with Anna's point that she made about you know, we've missed the boat. We need a mad rush to try and do something. And then how you actually balance that you are generating, I guess, outputs, outcomes, and trying to, you know, keep that connection with people who have a desire to, you know, see a sustainable future and adopt change. I think that's one of the challenges. And I guess if anyone's got some thoughts on that. Magic bullet. I'd like magic the answer. And, and are there any comments on that? Is it on? Yeah. yeah. Oh, look, I think it's... I think we've got to recognise the fact that we're in the middle of a revolution and that there are people, you know, like the first question who are already asking the really mature market questions about how do I see through this, whereas the verification... And there's people who are still thinking carbon offset is funny money. Um, and in some ways that means that there's going to be the, the lonely ones who are dragging other people along the way while we modernise and mature market. We, we've lost a lot of boats, but we can't give up. There's a great line that our chief scientist says, which is that it isn't that we've lost the battle, we've just started one that we cannot afford to lose. And I think for everybody and all the conversations and all the really amazing models that have been articulated, they only really work if all of us have a, a gut belief that we will get our act together. Mm. Otherwise, we might as well all just start building the trenches and stockpiling food. So we have got to believe that we will rise to this challenge, but it's going to require the A team and, and leading on. And what we find really interesting on a simple storytelling piece is that a, a hope story, a, a, an authentic hope story, will go much further than a crisis story. So there is still a lot of people out there who don't, know the way and want to be shown that way. So I think what's really powerful about rooms such as this is that everybody in this room has got to understand you're in a leadership role. So get on and lead and do, through that, try to continue to break through ceilings because you'll be inspiring other people who don't even know where to start. Um, so much will catch up. You know, all these initiatives are still, in a lot of ways, still in an embryonic state. They're not you know, understandable to our parents and in generations like that. Um, but we have to start and we have to sort of go forward a bit with a little bit of, of faith that we will get there and things will catch up. 
but it is it's 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 tricky and there's times when you just feel like you're not having the the traction or the pace and and people let you down um but i do believe even in the short time that i've been in the reef space it's quite remarkable where we were five years ago and where we are now and so every now and then if you look back and look at the journey you have faith but then there's a hell of a journey ahead of us and we are running out of time thanks anna um questions from the live stream particularly ones related to any yep. business-related topics would be great. Yeah, yeah, we have one for actually uh, Georgine and Andrew. It's uh, what are the gaps that need to be addressed to enforce sustainability policies from the government and corporate perspective? That's a tricky one. <laughs> Might need to repeat the question to give them time to think of suitable answers. <laughs> What are the gaps that need to be addressed to enforce sustainability policies so at the government and yeah. corporate? Yeah. The, the traceability one is, is certainly something that's come up a, a fair amount. Um, and the, the key component, and I was, I was at an interesting conversation with the government the other day, but um, the answer isn't always necessarily policy from our perspective. It, the investment in capital tends to drive behaviours a lot faster than, than policy can. Um, so, you know, if um, there's a general direction and a general consensus from the various stakeholders that's, that's starting to shift where capital flows, then it tends to move things along a lot faster. But in order to do that, you need to have trust and credibility in where you're putting your money. Thank you. As certainly from a government perspective, I mean, we've done a lot of work looking at how you might regulate greenhouse gas emissions, for example. Um, and, you know, what you find is that it is um, a, a particular lever, but it is not a silver bullet solution, as in it, it is the complete integration of um, um, how we go about all aspects of our business. So, you know, sort of our planning regimes need to align to a zero net emissions sort of um, outcome. You need um, the decisions of your coordinator general, for example, to align. You need uh, your treasury to be looking at, stop uh, laughing, Andrew, I can see. <laughs> you can, uh, you can, uh, you, you, so, so, so we're looking, for example, at the use of, um, say, TCFD, um, Task Force for Financial Related, what is it, Climate Disclosure, yeah, um, along those lines. Um, you know, how, how can we sort of really start every department uh, within government thinking on a climate risk basis? You know, what is their transition risk? What is their um, physical impact of climate change risk? and sort of take it from a bottom-up perspective all the way to a sort of a corporate perspective on how that impacts their policy outcomes, how it impacts their programs, legislation, and, in fact, the government operations. So I think um, all of those things are missing at the moment in the government space, um, but this, the conversation is very live on, on how you include them. And keep in mind that there is a massive capability uplift that needs to occur for um, sort of... Um, the public sector, at least, to understand at all levels how their decisions um, impact the outcomes when it comes to sort of aligning to a zero net emissions target, which we in fact have as a state, mm -hmm. and a, a, a 2030 target, 
and a 50% renewable energy target, which is which is which is far easier for people to comprehend. So that capability uplift um, is significant, um, but as it occurs, you will see that integration into all aspects of policy programs, operations starting to occur, and that alignment. Um, you know, and and it needs to happen faster, uh, unfortunately. I think too, Georgine, too, coordination between government departments, what Lynette sort of mentioned at the end, between the different departments, so natural resources and mining and transport and your department and so on. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're going to that too. That's the tricky bit. And I uh, think this, this has to do with, out here. Uh, with the next question, actually, of partnerships, okay. the question that we have from yep. here. Let's come back to that one. Oh, yep. sure. Another one here. Hi, I think a number of you mentioned the difficulty in measuring the data uh, as inputs for a lot of the processes that need to take place, but taking to the, the next step, you then got to have it in a com comparable format, and there's obviously a number of competing standards out there, and it's moving quite quickly, but um, where do you see that, that going? Obviously, TCFD is coming to place, but um, being able to identify laggards and outperformers, what would you like to see in terms of those standards evolve and, and become more unified? Like, does anyone have any views on what that looks like or how you'd like to see it evolve? Yeah, um, I, I've actually been involved in the Climate Measurement Standards Initiative, which brings together a bit more detail for financial services provider in terms of what we are to disclose and how we're to disclose. And uh, I suppose the underlying premise for, for TCFD is about giving confidence to investors about making comparisons about where they're going to park their money. So um, what we're trying to do in, through that initiative, uh, and there's another one kicking off soon around, we've, we've published something around physical risk. Um, we're just trying to work out where the, the direction will go with CMSI next. Um, but the idea and the premise there is to really create a standardised platform in terms of a specifically an industry sector in terms of what can we do to, to make the data comparable. And we see that with other regulations along the world or across the world, um, particularly with banking, international banking standards and, and insurers as well. So it's, it's great that there's an internationally led cohort and because that seems to be where you know, more of the impetus is coming from. But um, Australia is also doing what it can and, and certainly the institutions we're dealing with do. Yeah, before you mentioned the coordination issue, and there is a question from the audience on partnerships. Uh, what partnerships do you think can be created, can feasibly be created to implement sustainability principles? Probably at the government level, if conversation between government, civil society, and private sector. Well, I mean, I think let's look at what we've already got rather than creating new stuff. We've already got it with the SDG. I think that's the entire principle of that, and it's quite beautiful to witness how many people are, are, are leaning into that and, and that is becoming a, people are becoming SDG literate and joining forces on, on certain areas. I think there's a, comes a point that we've got to stop creating new mechanisms and start working with the ones that we got. We've got a pretty good one. The UN did that pretty good. Um, so I think then it's about holding people to account to that and, and not just being a talk fest but being impact, impact driven. Um, but I, I, I think that's probably would be my advice rather than to continue to 
deliver new ones. We can see, and even we see it around different state policy, that people have quite similar policy, but they're all branded a bit differently. So it makes it really challenging as an individual to know which is the best and, and all of this kind of thing. So I think the, the common language of sustainability is something that makes it really easy, because there's a lot of people out there who still don't really understand it. Um, so that'd be my feedback. Um, probably I'd like to add to that um, place-based policy. Um, so com communities um, are the best place to determine, um, given the right information, you know, how resilient they feel about the challenges ahead of them, you know, and are best able to define the values that they, um, you know, that will make them successful as they go forward. And therefore the partnerships that can be created with um, um, particularly regional communities to sort of self-determine their own path through these challenges I think is really, really important and really challenges government and the notion of government as the, the, the I guess, the aggregator and imposer of, of a one-size-fits-all sort of policy outcome. So those, those partnerships leaning in on the anchor institutions within those communities, including universities and other, um, you know, I think, you know, we need to all get better at being able to really um, successfully deliver those um, collaborative collaborative arrangements to deliver real and meaningful outcomes for, for communities. And an important part of communities are the business sector. So I want to ask a question to Belinda then. So, I mean, how do, how do you challenge the, the models or assumptions on sort of underpinning business models to, to move them towards being more circular or sustainable? And what role do industry associations or other sort of entities provide there, can they help facilitate that? So how can we move the dial, how can we change their assumptions and help them build better business models? I think we can all change the assumptions, Brent. I mean, I think we all have a role in that as individuals, um, you know, who purchase goods, but also as investors, you know, we all have super, where is our, where is our um, money actually in, invested? Is it going to companies which are adopting these sort of new business models? Are we actively trying to shape the conversation or are we sort of just recipients of it? Um, but I also like the the idea and linking, I guess when you were asking that question, I was also thinking about the partnership question coming mm. through. Um, and thinking about the way that businesses can work together within within a sector yeah. to, to, on yeah. these grand challenges, it doesn't have to be something around competition. It can be something where they, you know, if we're thinking about single-use plastics, how is the um, be the beverage sector working together to to challenge assumptions on that? How are packaging, um, you know, manufacturing looking at their packaging? How can they work to um, you know, minimise waste and, and do things better. So I think there's um, things that we can all do mm -hmm. um, and I think it can also be driven by businesses and by sectors to actually challenge these, um, these sort of issues. The other thing I would, you know, like to touch on is just in terms of new business models, um, the way that we confront the way, the way we think about business as usual um, so if we're thinking about sharing economy, is it, is it able to um, drive change in ways that we, uh, you know, against things that we've perhaps not been so um, accommodating of to date? Um, does it sort of, um, I guess, challenge us to think about ownership in a, in a different mm -hmm. way and sort of and move forward um, in, a, in a way that we can minimise our uh, resource consumption in that way. So yeah, I, th I think it's yeah. something we can all be part of. Yeah, yeah. And I, I take your point to about su supply chain and Lynette, you mentioned that too in your, your presentation. So do you want to comment any further on supply chain and the importance of 
of that aspect in terms of sustainability? I mean, supply chain in this case is incredibly important because Australia's given away its supply chain sort of um, structure in a way. We, we've concentrated on two things, an extractive economy and then a services economy. And, and the, the consequence of that is that we haven't really done a lot of work working across the supply chain. So uh, when I've gone out and talked to people within the, let's call them the, the battery sector, um, there isn't a lot of communication that happens up and down that line. Yeah. There isn't a lot of good conversation that necessarily happens between universities. It's normally one-on-one. -on -one. It's not a multiple thing. Yeah. So, so it's it's a really challenging um, um, concept for for Australia to get involved and create a, a sort of whole yeah. sector. Yeah. Thanks, Lynette. So, probably got time for one more question before we kind of move to the second part of of tonight's uh, schedule. So any, any more questions from, from the audience at all? Yes, we do. Have one more. Yeah. Hi. Um, uh, <clears throat> I was wondering, with the potential of the Olympic Games coming to Brisbane in 2032, what opportunity do you see the, the spotlight of the world being shone on Brisbane? What opportunity does that create for leverage, whether it's partnerships, opening up streams of funding that might not otherwise be available to anyone. I mean, has, has there been a commitment to try to make it a net zero games? I've read that somewhere, or did I dream? Yeah, yeah. so um, the, the, the requirement is that it is a climate positive games. Yeah. It, the, the leverage is significant. So certainly um, if Brisbane is successful, um, in, in hosting the games, I, I think it will drive um, the, the climate positive commitments are, are not insignificant and um, will require a lot of thinking and the time that we have between now and 2032 to really work out how it can be delivered. Um, and the games uh, works very, very hard on its legacy, um, pre-legacy and post-legacy outcomes. And so it's looking for a, a very large commitment to those. It, you also have an alignment of three levels of government around the initiative, which, you know, that's quite good. Um, so, you know, the, and, and in this case, it's uh, sort of particularly at local government level, not only, excuse me, Brisbane, but but Southeast Queensland um, uh, councils. So, so, so an extraordinary sort of collection of government commitment to those outcomes. Uh, and, I, and I think it would drive some magnificent um, uh, legacies for for um, Queensland. It, it is also, I note, uh, 2032, of course, with the delay of the NIGI um, greenhouse gas emissions data of two years, as you know, it would be when uh, it would become evident whether we've hit our 2030 target or not. <laughs> so, um, you know, there, it would be an interesting um, spotlight for, for sure on Queensland. I think um, one of the key aspects would be sustainable procurement and how you drive sustainable procurement um, through through government and, and government outcomes, which would be really exciting. Yeah, um, yeah so, um, you know... Go Aussie, go, go. Thanks, Georgie. We, we have one final question and then we'll wrap up this part of the, the event. Hello. <laughs> Sorry, I'm choked. Um, we've heard a lot about needs and challenges and um, it is a big, big challenge ahead of us, I guess. Um, but I was wondering if anyone on the panel wanted to comment on um, either what they're excited about or bright spots that they've seen in terms of like really good signs or something that's really surprised them and gone really, really well. Um, yep. 
So that's a question for all the panel. So maybe oh, very quickly, just time. just very quickly, in a good example or or, or something that's really illustrative, illustrative of opportunities. Yeah. I've, I've probably got three. Is that okay? Three. Um, Speak one, quickly. Yeah. Okay. One is, um, I suppose, in, in terms of how do we address. Uh, methane emissions in ruminants and what we're seeing in Tasmania and South Australia around um, the seaweed forests that uh, trying to address an 80% reduction in, in methane. Um, there's also, oh, I'll cut it down to two. Um, one is uh, also around the jet charge stations that they're talking about for uh, electric batteries and, and cars so that you, you're not having to, to deal with uh, significant wait times and turnaround times for charging so that it makes electric vehicles certainly uh, a more imminent prospect than further down the track. Lynette, do you want to go next? Because we ended on electric vehicles. <laughs> yes, of course I do. Um, I'm pleased to tell you that Georgine's husband tells me that ever since he got into a Tesla, he's been in love with them as well and he can't stop talking about them. And um, I would add that, that EVs really are a absolute star on the horizon. Uh, we bought one, you know, we saved up all our money, sold all the old cars and bought one. And we did 5,000 kilometres around central Queensland. Um, not, a, not, a, not a fast charger in sight, but it's amazing how much you can connect with the local community when you're charging your car overnight um, from 2 o'clock in the afternoon till 10 o'clock the next morning. And it was a fabulous experience. So, you know, kind of as, as, as holidays go and as a sense of purpose that you're kind of doing something positive, it's, it's a great thing on the horizon. Great. Belinda? Okay, I'm going to go for a feel-good one. Um, I was on a panel with a student um, this week and she'd won a first prize in, in a UQ Ventures program and it was all around um, sharing economy and, and fast fashion. Um, and then I thought I was really intrigued by this and she had this amazing business model. She'd worked it out, all the plans. It sounded incredible. And then I looked at the competition winners. There were five of them and I think at least three of them were on environmental topics. Mm. So I think that made me feel really strong about our future that we're having this generation of innovators um, come out trying to challenge and, and tackle these issues. Great, thank you. Anna? Oh, look, I'm the same. Look, we're not having these conversations in the fringes or anymore in the shadows. They're happening on mainstream and there is such a, a, a upswell of accountability coming from people power. But I would also say again to every now and then to look backwards and look at the progress you know you know as kids we used to eat big macs in polystyrene boxes and people just throw them out of windows you know now every single person goes into a coles or a woolworths with their you know reusable bags yeah. we are making progress we've got to keep doing it but we are we're just not every now and then pausing and reflecting yeah. that we're in the middle of this revolution yeah thanks anna ian i'm not trained to be optimistic either by nationality or profession um <laughs> However, I would say Biden coming into the US election, I think um, hopefully will hold the candle up that we can, we can have some sustainable federal policy in the US. Um, and even if it doesn't, I, I investigate a lot of the, the state level environmental policy in, in, in the US. And they do a remarkable job in terms of carbon markets, and even, even when you have a situation where they're very anti-tax, anti-environmental anti regulation at the, the, the federal level, there's still progress being made. And I feel if you get enough momentum there, then the, the world will change, hopefully. Great. Last word. Um, look, I, you know, I work in this space, so every day I see just amazing things and, and uh, I get full of beans. Um, it, 
Sorry, be truthful. No, I mean, I, yeah, I, I go sort of every day sort of from um, barricading myself in with the, <laughs> with the tin tomatoes to um, um, wildly excited about the, the, the potential of, of humans. I think if, if I need to go and get a bit of a fix, um, I'll go and look at the rewilding videos that are happening across all of the major continents and just look at the extraordinary work that people are doing in conservation to bring back extraordinary species. And that really gives me a buzz. I think maybe we aren't so bad after all. Great. Thank you for the question. A really good question to end the panel discussion on. So thank you to the panel, all panellists. Thank you very much. All right. So we're going to say goodbye to the live stream participants. Uh, thank you for your questions and hopefully you got value out of the, the session. Isabel is just going to brief us on the next stage, uh, which is going to have you working, working hard, thinking about some of the actions and solutions up until about 8 o'clock. And we've got to make sure, too, that our panellists get some food, uh, guys, so that'd be great. So, Isabel, do you want to just give a quick brief on the next steps? Thank you very much. Okay. Well, thank you so much for staying in this second part of the um, conversation series. My name is Isabel Franco, and I'm a research fellow. I exchanged some online communications with some of you, but it's, you know, ha I'm very happy to meet you in person. So, well, this second part, this workshop will be more a conversation, a discussion. Uh, we promise you are not being tested. This is uh, uh, this is uh, an exercise to connect and, and network and hopefully create future partnerships and opportunities uh, for collaboration. Um, for our participatory workshop today, we have allocated six tables uh, with around 10 participants each. Each table will cover different topics, as you can see, uh, which were the same topics that our panelists covered before. Um, carbon offsets, circular economy, community transitions and sustainability policy implications, corporate purpose, uh, technology and connections with sustainability and biodiversity. Uh, upon arrival, uh, you receive a color tag, which is the same color tag that you've got in the table. So we have a wide representation of different stakeholders and an engaging conversation from private sector, government, and civil society. So we're going to do a bit of exercise, and we get ready to connect uh, um, for our networking event. Uh, could you please stand up, private sector? We are blue, blue private sector. If you could please stand up. Thank you so much. So we have an interesting representation. Thank you for that. Um, government, green, please. Okay, it's very interesting. And civil society organizations, red. Oh, we don't have any? Yes, we do. Okay, excellent. Thank you so much. So as you can see, we have a uh, quite a wide uh, variety of uh, uh, a good representation from different sectors in each table. So this will help us to have a very engaging conversation and hopefully come up with um, interesting outputs. Um, during the workshop, what is happening? So we start off with some introductions, some as I break in and we get to know each other, get ready again for the networking event. And then our facilitators, I would like to please, um, I'm gonna uh, call you, just please stand up so people get to know you and they can connect with you during a networking event. So, and if you can introduce yourself as well briefly, uh, so, uh, um, the audience uh, get to know you, Jen, from the Center of Policy Futures. If you can stand up and introduce yourself. Yeah, so Jen will be facilitating the table on um, carbon offsets. Um, 
and uh, Ray from the Center of Policy Futures. Thank you, Ray. Pedro, please. Uh, uh, Pedro, uh, Center for Policy Futures. Uh, my expertise is in environmental governance and policy, as well as a different range of um, projects. Thank you, Pedro. Brent, I think he introduced, yourself, he introduced himself before, but well, this is Brent, our acting director at APE and our um, um, research dean. Kristen from APE, please. Thank you. Yeah. Well, and myself, Isabel Franco, I'll be um, working together with Andrew White on the uh, table and corporate purpose. I'm a research fellow at A. My work cuts across various areas of sustainability, science, policy, and practice. Um, speakers will be at the tables as well, as I said, but I'd uh, like to clarify that facilitators will take a, an active role from now on. So speakers, you already did your job, so don't worry about that. Yeah, it was very, <laughs> it was like, I'll do the presentation, this is, yeah, yeah, you don't have to worry. And uh, facilitators will be, uh, they will be guiding you through different questions uh, to get a sense of what you think about the two key questions. And I have, um, uh, where is the, um, Oh, you broke it. Okay. Okay, well, we have. Um, uh, can we move to the next uh, slide? So, um, so yeah, so to get a sense of what you think, and, and also Brent introduced these two questions, the guiding questions. What are the key needs to implement sustainability solutions in your sector, and what needs to happen to address these needs? So, um, Cora, uh, another facilitator, Cora, please stand up, introduce yourself. Yeah, so Cora will be passing across tables, collecting participant perceptions, um, and um, her work will be very helpful for our next stage of what's going to happen after the workshop. So after the workshop, we really appreciate if you could please, um, you have the program, and in the program, uh, can we just click? Yeah, so in the program you have, um, we have um, this, uh, we prepared this booklet for you. So we're trying to identify three gaps, three needs and partnership opportunities. If you could please kindly help us fill in the information as shown in the program, that would be very helpful. Make sure uh, you include your contact details on the bottom right uh, part of the booklet. So, and please give the booklet back to facilitators when you are finished. Um, based on your input, uh, we will come up with a report, as Brent said before. Um, this will be later disseminated with all particip participants to uh, make sure we create uh, future opportunities, not only partnerships, but to eventually keep the conversation going. So that's pretty much from uh, the brief. And um, so we thank you so much. Thank you in advance for your input and contributions during this workshop. Will you have uh, more food? Please help yourselves if, if you 
feel like having some more. There's some uh, soft drinks out there, and and we'll uh, uh, quite soon we have some some alcohol as well. So we have some some yeah drinks to connect and network. So thank you so much. Let us know if you have any questions. Otherwise, the facilitators will be helping you and helping you and guiding you over the conversation. Thank you and enjoy the worship. Thanks. Hello, can I have a, your attention, please? Can I have your attention, please? I was given these challenger tasks to be, well, I thought it was a challenger task because I thought it was, I would be between you and drinks, and I'm relieved now that drinks are being served. <laughs> but um, I, I, I won't take long. It's been a long day for, for all of us, and, uh, but it's uh, what a nice way to finish the day with a, such a stimulating conversation. So um, I hope you have enjoyed uh, this evening as much as, as I have. Uh, we started, I just want to wanna, uh, quick recap. We started with a, a great lineup of speakers addressing sustainability issues from a different perspectives, including um, government, charity, corporate sector, and university, and these and others are the main players in, in this field. And I think it's one of the highlights where you have, you know, my insight is that, you know, to address these complex issues, we need different perspectives from different sectors, which leads to the, 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 the second, my second um, highlight of the night, which is collaboration. So we had speakers talking about different um, issues across a range of areas, community transitions, carbon offset, biodiversity, circular economy, technology for sustainability. And this set a nice context for the discussions that we we have in now so i think it's, it's, it was was amazing thanks for the our panelists panelists so this is a you know as i said leads to the to the one of my other highlights is it's the key message from the evening for me is the the issue of collaboration so we have we need to have the different perspectives but we need to col collaborate among ourselves uh, no single sector would be able to um, solve complex problems such as um, sustainability issues. And indeed, um, one of the main goals for this event was uh, to foster partnerships among different sectors represented, represented here tonight. And this very um, event is a, is a collaboration between Abe and Policy Futures, and I think um, Brent for the opportunity to, to be part of this um, event. And we hope that tonight we help to strengthen your networks and um, as well as help uh, create exciting, new exciting partnerships among ourselves. Um, the, Queens, the University of Queensland through ABE and, and Center for, for Policy Futures are very keen to continue this conversation to, into the future and, and exploring opportunities for, for collaboration in, in this space. Thank you all for your insights and stimulating discussion. And we look forward to connecting with you very soon. On that note, um, we are planning uh, other events in, in the coming weeks and months um, that may be um, of interest uh, to you. We, we are organizing, for example, a panel on new technologies for sustainable food, water, and energy at the Sustainable Research Innovation Congress this, that is happening in Brisbane in June, but um, part of it will be online. So our, our, our panel will be actually online, so it's accessible to everyone. 
Um, and also the Bell Fac Faculty Showcase event is happening in, in, in mid-September as part of uh, UQ Research Week. So look out for information on this in, in, in due course. So um, now we would like to um, thank the speakers, and Isabel has a, a little um, thing to... Oh, facilitators uh, as well? Yeah, of course. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> For Sarah. Sarah, please, could you help me with that? So, uh, we have speakers. And just finally, thank you to Isabel and also Sarah and the, the team at Customs House, which always do a fantastic job. Thank you so much for organising it. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And we'll be in touch soon with the report and follow up with other conversations with you in the future. Thank you. Thank you.